Brooks's concern. <clears throat> uh, I don't know if any of you have been watching the Olympics or if that's your thing. Um, yeah, some of it, for me personally, some of it I like, some I don't. I think we tend to be more of a winter Olympic family. Um, one of the things I think about with the Olympics is I think of the judging. And, you know, some sports are very, uh, what would the word be, technical or analytical or whatever. If it's a race, they go by time. And some sports are judged. And kind of never really liked the whole judging thing. And um, I remember years ago, one of the female gymnasts, uh, which you're probably familiar with them. They're usually about this tall. They're built like a linebacker, and they're like 13 years old, I think. <laughs> um, I remember one of them got a perfect score, perfect 10, I think it was, whatever the perfect score was. And probably me and Spencer, at least, were like, nah, it's not perfect. It can't be perfect. Only God is perfect. It had to be a 9.9 .9 at best, right? <laughs> so that's just kind of how we are you know it's like we tend to think no you can't give somebody a perfect 10 it's impossible um, well as we finish Matthew chapter 5 the last verse you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect I'm reading out of the ESV I think most translations are very similar um, we'll give some uh, explanation on what that means because uh like Inez, I remember last week, wherever she is, did she leave? Oh, um, she had mentioned at lunch, it's like, man, that one's always giving me trouble. And it's like, yeah, Jesus commanding you must be perfect. That's intimidating. As God is perfect, God is a perfect 10. We are not. And um, so anyway, we'll look at that. So we'll pray and uh, then we'll go go through these last verses of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at, uh, after my usual kind of review, we will look at uh, verses 43 through 48. Lord, thank you. Uh, we're grateful. Grateful to be here. Grateful to uh, walk this life that you graciously have given us. We're grateful to be in America, a country of blessing and freedom. We're grateful to be in Alaska in August in such a gorgeous day. Um, we're just grateful. Our hearts are filled with thankfulness and gratitude. We remember your suffering and sacrifice just moments ago. And now we look into your word and uh, we're thankful. We're thankful we have your word. And we're thankful we as a body can look at it. And we will be grateful, Lord, as you help us apply it to our life and that we be transformed by your word and by the work of the Spirit of God in us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so if you had an insert, if you got one, I always apologize. I get them here late. This one I finished less than 24 hours ago. So, you know, be gracious. Um, but the whole summary, um, so Jesus, brand new in his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist had just been in prison, so Jesus kind of goes up to Galilee, north of, of Israel or, or Jerusalem, and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
radical concept, just like it is for us today. Most of us would probably think, yeah, I know the kingdom is here and stuff, but, you know, I got to go to work tomorrow, and when I go home today, I got to probably mow my lawn or whatever I got to do, and, you know, it's kind of a strange idea, not real tangible. But that was his message. So he went about preaching, teaching, and healing. And teaching that the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom, frankly, I put, it's weird. I mean, it's very strange. It's very different. It's weird for us today. I don't mean weird in a negative way. I mean weird as a really weird, different way. And it would have been for them. You know, a lot of times we read the word and we just think, oh, yeah, that was back then. Well, some things for them were just as weird for them some things were just as weird for them as they are for us, sometimes more. So, and the kingdom subjects are weird. And we went through the Beatitudes a long time ago, but blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, so if you're in this kingdom, you're poor, you're empty in your spirit, you mourn, you're meek, you, you hunger and thirst, and you want to be filled, but that has not happened yet. You show mercy, even to those who don't receive mercy. Your heart is pure. You're a peacemaker. You desire there be peace. And you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Not persecuted because you're obnoxious. You're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So I thought, okay quick self-test. Um, so just for a moment, look that over if you haven't already and kind of see where would you honestly put yourself? Are you empowered, self-determined? You believe in yourself? Is your life comfortable, pleasant, full of fun? Are you confident, assertive, proud? Would you describe your life as satisfying, rewarding, contented? How are you with paybacks and settling scores? You know, are you one that, you know, always need that last word, always want to settle things? Are you transparent? Does the outer you match the inner? Does the you that God sees 24-7 match the outer you that people around you see? Do you stand your ground in controversial discussions? Do you adapt to others and fit right in wherever you are? Now, I just kind of prayerfully thought this up as a way of us examining ourselves, and you may or may not have noticed they're kind of in contrast to these Beatitudes. So, I will leave that kind of with between you and the Lord to kind of work that out. Um, is your life filled with butterflies and rainbows? Are your days consumed with your own agenda? Are you checking boxes on your bucket list? Are you between thrill-seeking and fun-numb? Are you actually in the kingdom or spectating? And I think I'm not here to, quote, judge your life, I'm very much here to, if I can, facilitate God at work in your life, you know, when I'm preaching the word. Um, And a lot of this describes 
the culture, that cultural soup that we are all swimming in. This should all sound very familiar, maybe not for you personally, but for modern day America. If you're in the kingdom, and I certainly pray you are, because there is, by the way, not this uh, intermediate area. You're in or you're not in. You're in or you're out. You're saved or you're not saved. You're born again or you're not born again. You're in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. We as Americans always want that safe kind of non-committal. It doesn't really exist spiritually. It's kind of like that safe place between North Korea and South Korea, which I think is like filled with mines and you'll be shot on sight if they see somebody in there, right? That's the safe zone. <laughs> yeah, that's the buffer zone. And there is no buffer zone in the kingdom. We are in the kingdom or we are not. In or out. And for those who are in the kingdom, Jesus then goes on to say, you are salt and light. Those have purpose. If you're in the kingdom, you have purpose. Divinely appointed purpose. Eternal, uh, eternity impacting purpose. Far beyond bucket lists and settling scores and controversial discussions. You have God-ordained purpose. And each one of you have that purpose in your own context that nobody else can reach the way you can. Your salt, your light. And the requirement for entrance into this kingdom is exceeding righteousness. Uh, Because Jesus says, in one of my favorite, not so favorite verses, Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as theologically trained evangelical believers, we would all go right to, well, I have Jesus' righteousness. So, I have all righteousness. I have perfect righteousness. That is true. But keep it in context of who he's talking to. He's talking to the greater circle, and he's talking to his believers. And he's making it very clear. Unless your righteousness, unless your right relationship, is another way to think of that word, or rightness. You are right with God. Evangelists usually say, you need to get right with God. That means righteousness. Unless it exceeds the most righteous people, Apparently, in their time, you will never enter the kingdom. And among other things, that should knock us right back to the first beatitude over and over and over. And the first beatitude is poor in spirit, right? Poor in spirit. It's not me, it's not about me, I'm not a swaggering Christian. It's all about him. I'm just like a robot for Jesus. Actually, it'd probably be better if I was because then the messy part of me would be out of the way. But we live for him. And and my life is to be about him. And to show other people him. And so, you know, when I read things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the 
kingdom or the end of the chapter, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That changes how I view this stuff. And it should you. Every single time we should take a piece of bread and think, Lord, thank you. You are awesome. Literally awesome in the proper use of the word. You're awesome. You inspire awe. And I'm so grateful because in me there's no good thing. And you died for me. You showed your love by dying on the cross and you did it. And more than that, you called me out of the darkness so I could experience that. And then he talks about these six, yeah, six correlations or analogies or examples. And we've been through those. Uh, anger. Um, so murder is in the inside. It's in your mind, right? It's like if, if you think someone's an idiot or say they're a fool, that's somehow equivalent to murder. So it's not this outward, did I actually kill somebody? It's an inward, I kind of have done that a bunch of times, and that should make me spiritually poor and come back to that first beatitude. It's like, God, I'm, I'm empty without you. Adultery is in the heart, and it's so... Adultery and lust, it's so serious. He says, you know, tear your eye out. Cut your hand off. Adultery or or lust starts with viewing, generally. Rip your eye out. Then it could deal with inappropriate physical contact. Chop your hand off. I mean, that's how serious these things are, the ins and outs of religion. So he's trying to teach. It's all in here because this is what God sees. It's not outward. I mean, the outward should come. But if, if I just care about how I look and I wore this sort of a new shirt because I want to look good, but inside I'm like a, a mausoleum and God sees the inside, something's wrong. So adultery, marriage. Marriage isn't up to me to decide when I pull the plug or not because there's a flow to these, by the way. Adultery, lust, then goes to divorce, and then he goes into oaths. So your word is before God. So if I make a promise in marriage, it's before God. It's not like I have to swear on the temple and the altar and the gold in the temple and you know Solomon and all eighty-five thousand of his kids and you know all this kind of stuff that they did back then. It's what's in here. And you're not permitted to. Last week we looked at those four areas of life where Jesus essentially says, you do not have the right as my follower, as a member of my kingdom, you have given up your right for retaliation. Right? Remember that from last week? So if someone attacks my dignity and slaps me, I have to let it go. And we said things like law enforcement, warfare, there are other things that you have to sort out as a Christian, but it's not, that's not the place to do it, because that's not what he's talking about there. Um, so slapping, assault, insulting my dignity, and uh, there were the others. Um, your uh, security, you know, if someone sues you, you have to be willing 
to, to give, to be taken advantage of, within a, a context at least. Um, your liberty, if someone forces you to go a mile, you should be willing. In fact, you should be very eager for the sake of the kingdom. To give up your liberty for the greater overarching purpose of the kingdom. That's what that says. Okay. And then whatever the last one was. Oh, don't turn away from those in need. Right? We talk about it with the offering, how God blesses us, how we're stewards. And we got to be good stewards. And sometimes that means helping somebody who needs has greater needs than you. So now we, we get to verse 43. And this is the final of those uh, analogy, correlations, whatever. The final of the, you have heard, but I say to you. And the underlines should correlate with the handout you have. So in, in these six things, he says, you have heard. And he's saying, this is what you know, this is what you've been taught, this is what's commonly believed, this is even what the, the Old Testament Bible people were teaching. It was corrupted. But you have heard, and he says, but I say to you, and the one who fulfills the law, he just told us earlier in that chapter, is now clarifying what these things mean. You have heard, but I say to you, and in verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers or brothers and sisters or friends or family or people you like, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so I put in here love is a verb. Uh, as I was studying the word love, and some of this won't be new to you. A lot of you know some of this. Uh, love is a verb or is it a noun? I put ask Spencer. I absolutely love it when I'm up here and I just, you know what I mean? <laughs> It's like when I'm in the jail and someone's like, Chaplain, what do I do about it? I don't know. You've got to ask your PO. <laughs> I don't know. You've got to ask your lawyer. I mean, if I can help them, I will. But it's kind of always nice to like, you know, throw them the hot potato. So um, hope that's not a problem, bro. But, uh, and actually, the, the word for love, it, it can be both. I mean, there are two different words. But there's the noun form and the verb form. Um, just like we would say that. So if I say, I love you, bro, that's a verb, right? Action. But if I say, God's love, God is love, no? Well, maybe. But the love of God changes your life. That would be a noun, right? And half of you know more about grammar and English than I do, so go with that. <laughs> but, but here, what he's talking about 
as, is we're going to look at love as a verb, as action, unless I've totally botched that up. Um, but Joel, you could put up the agapeo, agapao, agape things, which I don't have in front of me. Um, okay, so this word here, agapao, you can talk to Spencer about this. Uh, it's one of four Greek verbs meaning to love. And you've, you've heard a lot of them. Uh, one, uh, eros, is a sexual or romantic love, right? Uh, that would be usually between a man and a woman, though not exclusively, I think. Uh, storge is one on that list, which I'd never heard of, but uh, love of family. Uh, phileo is one that you're very probably very familiar with. It's a brotherly or friendship kind of love. It was kind of a more general term for love. Uh, how you go with this depends on, well, it's like if you ask somebody to define love, you're going to get 50 definitions from 50 people. And this is partly true, uh, looking back to the ancient Greek. It's like whoever's work you go to, you're going to get a little bit different flavor. But the important thing is the word used here is agape, or agape, agape would be the noun. And it says something there which I can't really read. Um, okay. So, all right, I'm supposed to be reading this. Uh, now, the love that this, so this is from John MacArthur, conservative, solid Greek theologian. Uh, the love that seeks and works to meet another's highest welfare. Okay? That's one of the definitions he gives. May involve emotion may involve emotion, but must involve action, right? That's why I think somebody put that in a song once or something, love is a verb. It's active, it's action. Um, the love that God is, God is love. The love that God demonstrates and that God gives. And usually most people know agape love as like unconditional love. It's usually how you would say it. So um, it's, it's a love that, you know, we, we think in our common usage of the word love, there's so much emotion and feeling and all of this stuff. I made reference to somebody I know recently, um, and I made a joke about pushing him down the stairs. And the person I was speaking to was like, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. I said, that's okay. He knows I love him. And that was more shocking than the first thing I said, because then he looked at me and he said, you love him? And I said, let me tell you something. Right now I'm studying agape love. Yes, I love him. Now the person in question has committed really not good things. So any, if you knew the person, which probably none of you do, your first reaction would be like, you love him? But I have to say, yeah, I seek and work to meet his best welfare. I don't like the person. I certainly don't like or respect his actions and the way he has hurt others. But Bible love may involve emotion, but it must involve action. I have his best welfare in mind. 
That's agape love. The love that God is demonstrates, God gives. I mean, think what we look like to him, especially before he saved us. Yeah. We're talking like, it's like if you go to the Midtown Park there where all the geese hang out on the grass and about every three inches there's a pile of goose poo, right? And it's like, ah, man, you got to watch your step here. Think how we would appear to God and his love for us. He demonstrates it, as one of you guys said earlier. While we were still sinners and enemies and blasphemers and God-haters, he showed it on the cross. Glorious, agape love, the perfect love of a father for his children that would sacrifice nothing to redeem his child. And that's the call for us, is to love people like that. So, um, a lot of this, by the way, comes from Leviticus chapter 19. I don't know that I will go there, but the especially verses 18 and 34, actually I will, because we should read that. Uh, quick overview of Leviticus 19, Leviticus Moses getting, receiving the law and giving it to the people. And uh, the whole context is God saying, you shall be holy for I am holy. And the people, his nation that he pulled out of Egypt and is created to be the chosen nation out of all nations should reflect the one who chose them. You should be holy for I am holy. By the way, that kind of still applies very much. Um, so as we go through Leviticus 19, he talks about the first four verses, revering parents, keeping the Sabbaths, not having idols. Then he goes into offerings must be acceptable. You should consider the poor and the harvest. And some of you, you know about the gleaning and stuff. It's like he forbade them from picking every single apple off the tree or cutting every little stalk of wheat all the way to the fence line. You know, that consider the poor. Um, do not steal or swear falsely. Don't lie. Treat others fairly. Be impartial with others. Don't be bribed or, you know, whatever. Be impartial. No hatred or vengeance. Some of this is kind of sounding familiar, right? Sermon on the Mount. And then in uh, verse 18, that one I will read. Uh, Okay, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's one of the early places where you're going to see that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he talks about uh, purity or holiness or maybe even like a sanctification in agricultural practices. And the same thing in sexual relations. Then more about farming, food, personal things. Um, he gets down into 29 30 about prostitution, mediums, honoring the elderly. And then he says in verse 33, When a stranger sojourns in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's two early places where God is saying, you shall love others as you love yourself. 
And in our context, that sounds really weird, unless you start to think, well, I don't have to be like, oh, man, I just love my neighbor. He's always playing that loud music when I need to go to sleep and get up really early. I just love my neighbor. No, but it does mean you care for that person's best welfare. And among other things, you know, when they're partying and you can smell the weed drifting over the fence and all that, you pray for people. And if you can actually get involved in their lives and have a ministry or witness to them, that's better. But if you can't do that, you can at least say, Lord, okay, I need to go to sleep. I'm way tired and five o'clock's coming. But I pray that you would bless my neighbor. I really pray, Lord, this is hard for me, but I pray that you would bless him, that you would do great things in his life. I pray that you would bless him so much that his life would be a testimony of your grace. Among other things, you ain't going to hate your neighbor. You still won't like the music, but you cannot hate your neighbor when you start to have their best interest in mind. And it changes you. And if it doesn't do a darn thing for your neighbor, oh, it'll do great work in your life. Absolutely. Right? It does. I try to apply this while I'm driving. That's one of my absolute life heroes right there because that's what he does for a living. And I used to do that for a living in L.A. when I was much younger. And I don't know if the techniques have changed, but it was aggressive back then. And it's always a challenge for me. But I've started to develop the habit of like, Lord, I knew that person was going to cut in. And I pray that you bless that person, that you change their whole life so that they would become a person where they say, no, you first. It changes you. It reduces stress. Did she? No. Why? Was it a bad week? Something happened, yeah. Oh, no. You doing good? Okay. I'm with you, bro. I know. Okay, so that's where a lot of this love comes from, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's back to Leviticus. And the part about, and you shall hate your enemy. That, I can't find that anywhere. I mean, they had enemies, and sometimes they were ordered to destroy them all, but I can't find anywhere, hate your enemy, in the word. And when I did the research, nobody else that I read, there were did either. And that's why a lot of this, Jesus is correcting the religious twisting and corruption that they put on the Old Testament. That's what all this is about. Okay. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, okay, so I put uh, love, pray, and persecute all, all these in the Greek, and I'm almost a blind man when it comes to Greek. But, you know, I will do some research and lean on people who are respected. And it's all with continuous, repeated action. So the love, the pray, and the persecute all have that connotation. So if somebody is, like, continually, repeatedly persecuting you, not just a one-off, you know, I give you one chance and then we're done, you, your command from the king of kings, the king of the kingdom, is to love and pray with continuous, repeated action. That's why 
in the term of forgiveness when they're like, hey, how many times do I got to forgive? You know, what's the limit? Seven? It's like, yeah, seven times seven times seven times seven times seven times, you know. I mean, rhetorically, Jesus wasn't giving them a number. He's like, there ain't no number. You know, forgive others as many times as you want to be forgiven. Right? Lord's Prayer. We forgive others as, or forgive us as we forgive others. Ooh, that'll make you shiver. Unless you adopt some of this stuff, and you're like, okay, okay, I can't hold a grudge. I can't hold sins against somebody. I love. I lift them up in prayer. That you may be. Okay, now this sounds kind of funny. So that you may be sons of your father. So is this saying, okay, so if I work hard at loving and praying for mean, bad people that I don't like, then that gets me to heaven? No. Surely we know that, right? Good Bible study technique. Observation. Interpretation. And the Chuck Swindoll one that I always think of, correlation. So you take, you don't just grab a verse out of the Bible like Ecclesiastes, you know, the dead know nothing. It's like, see, when you die, you go to sleep because it says Ecclesiastes, the dead know nothing. Really? Take the whole Bible in context. So this doesn't mean that if you do a good job at this, you become a child of God. What it means is that you may be, that, uh, that your conduct and behavior demonstrates that, that you may be. If I'm a child of God, I should live as a child of God. I don't live as a child of God to become one. Very important differences, as Tom was talking about grace. Grace, it is by grace you are saved through faith. And then you better get in line. Because you got the name of the king, the king of kings on you. And you're a child of God. And you must live according to his word and his principles. But people always want to get it backwards. I was sharing with a guy of a different faith. And he didn't really know anything about it. And he picks like the most legalistic, works-oriented faith you can get. And he goes, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know how to pray. And I said, okay, I'll get you some stuff. I downloaded the stuff off the internet just on prayer. I'm like, thank you for grace, Lord. (laughs) Thank you for grace. The stuff this guy has to do before he can even talk to God (laughs) is staggering. I mean, blowing water up and out of your nose and cleaning your entire body repeatedly. (laughs) I'm just like, really? Man, good thing the thief on the cross didn't put his faith in that God. It would have been kind of hard to pull that off. Grace. So that's what all this is about. Uh, it's not that you become God's son by do, or daughter, child, by doing this. It's that you're confirming it. You're demonstrating that. Visible evidence. Um, okay, that you may be, which is to be made, formed, or become. As with stones into bread, that's what Satan said said to Jesus when he was tempting him. (laughs) Uh, You know, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Uh, It's a visible evidence. And that's faith and works. 
So if you're familiar with James, and you know, a lot of people think, well, James is kind of weird. How do you reconcile that with grace? I'm like, it's never been a problem for me. He just says, you know, you can talk about faith all you want and that you believe. The demons do that, James says. And I, I've told people, they believe better than you do because they see it all. We kind of don't. But James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. So that fits all of this. You know, if you're born again, there must be visible evidence. There should, at some point, we're all different, but at some point there should be fruit on the tree. You should understand what, what it's like to be in this brand new kingdom, which is a couple thousand years old, but it's radically different. And we should be people that live radically different because of the kingdom. Okay, visible evidence. Um, And then, you know, like the first few times I read this, I think I told you, I'm like, what is all this kind of unconnected stuff? And the more I studied this, the more perfect sense it makes to me. So Jesus says, I'll start reading in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And I read that before a long time ago. I'm like, well, what's the weather got to do with all of this? Well, God is indiscriminate in, the, in many of his blessings, right? Many of them. And especially the sun rises. It's like evil people don't live in darkness. I mean, they do spiritual darkness. But they get, you know, everybody in Anchorage gets this day regardless of who deserved it or not, right? The sun rises on both. And God causes the rain to come and to water the crops and to provide life on the earth to, all, to both, indiscriminately, without distinction. Is that up there? Yep. Okay. Um, rewards, tax collectors, greeting and Gentiles. So he's talking about reward. He goes, what reward? What benefit? What, how would that benefit you if you acted like everybody else? That's the rewards. And the tax collectors and the Gentiles, Jesus picks two kind of social outcasts, which, by the way, he spent a lot of time with reaching out to. But he picks two of the social outcasts. And so I think this is actually kind of simple. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? This, now, this was one that struck me years, decades ago, actually back when I was a truck driver in L.A. And I'm like, that makes sense. Because he's like, if you just do good to somebody you like or that you get good back from, big deal. Anybody does that. Or if you greet only your brothers or your friends... What more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. Gentiles would be symbolic of unbelievers, usually. Yeah, so even, and he is talking to a predominantly Jewish audience, though not exclusively in Galilee, but especially his small group and the Pharisees and them. So he's using analogies that they're going to key on. They're like, 
I don't want to be like a tax collector, and I don't want to be like a Gentile, so I should be different. And that's what he's saying. You should be different from the inside out. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. Be perfect. Okay, the word perfect there means complete, which we talked about at lunch last week. Mature. Lacking nothing. Finished. That word can be interpreted different ways. Um, There's one, two, three, four, five times that Jesus had preached a large discourse or message, the Sermon on the Mount being one of them. And at the end of chapter 7, the verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, that's the perfect word. There was nothing lacking. When Jesus finished, completed the Sermon on the Mount, Okay? Um, The classic words, it is finished when our Lord was on the cross. And it all was complete. There was nothing lacking. And when his last words are, it is finished, that's this word. He is saying, it's absolutely complete. There is nothing lacking. I have done all that the Father told me to do, that all that the Father sent me to do, all that I came to accomplish. Uh, James, I'll turn there, James 1, because James is always our friend, right? He's such a pushover. (laughs) James, count it all joy, my brother. So I'm just James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, we just read about like all kinds of testing of your faith in this Sermon on the Mount, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't know which of those three right there comes from the Greek word, but they kind of all are touching on the same meaning. So when he says at the end of Matthew 5, you must be perfect. Actually says you, therefore, therefore, because of all I've taught it so far, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You must be lacking nothing. The rich young ruler, um, perfect. That's what he says to him in Matthew 19. Lord, what do I have to do? Well, I don't know. What are the rules? Well, there's this and this and this and this and this, and I kept them all. Okay. Give it all up, right? Um, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So he's saying if you want to lack nothing, which this young guy was lacking the big piece, If you want to be perfect, if you want to be lacking nothing, if you want to be complete, give it all away and come with me. Now, context is important. Jesus does not tell everybody everywhere at all times to give everything away. He does tell us all to follow him. And he does say things like, you know, if you don't hate your life, 
you're not worthy of me, or you must pick up your cross and follow me. He does say a pretty, a whole load of hard stuff. And thank you for it, Lord. Okay, so that's perfect. Chapter 6 is about avoiding hypocrisy. So he is, the chapters weren't there, but they're helpful for us. So the first part of the Sermon on the Mount He's telling them, he's driving home the point of how you must be in this new kingdom, under this new sphere of authority, with him as king. These are the ways you must live. By the way, Joel, I like my letter style. I picked better than that one. It kind of looks like donuts or balloons or something. Sorry, you guys, I don't mean to get too random. That's just how I am. Uh, So chapter 6 is about avoiding hypocrisy. And I would very much encourage you now to read through chapter 6 and 7 and think, okay, Lord, what are you saying here? What were you saying then? How does this apply to me? And apply it. Apply it. At the end, near the end, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's at the the culmination, not this part of the kingdom, the completeness of the kingdom. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, he doesn't say, no, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And you didn't do this. He doesn't refute that. What does he say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, that will come as a surprise. Right? That will come as a surprise. And God forbid that any of us be surprised on that day. So live... Uh, cognizant of the kingdom, understand that you are a subject of the kingdom. Anchorage uh, municipality rules apply, state of Alaska rules apply, the U.S. federal rules apply, but over and above it all is the kingdom and the king. And there are times we've seen just this much, in my opinion, in the last year and a half of governmental authorities clashing with the church. And some people felt like the church is going, you know, the government's going to stamp out the church. Newsflash, every government has tried that (laughs) for 2,000 years, right? Caesar didn't stamp, stamp out the church. Emperors didn't stamp out the church. Communism didn't stamp out the church. Usually where the church gets stomped on the most, it's the healthiest. So, Whatever's happening now with COVID and, and any other things, and who knows what the future holds, but you belong to the king. Never lose track of that. The government may say you can do this or you can't do that or what about this and that. You belong to the king of kings. And even if you have to go to the firing squad and end up in you know Hebrews chapter 11, rhetorically speaking, So what? Bring it on. 
right? We belong to the king. We are here. He did not waste his blood on me or you. It was precious, more precious than anything. And he shed it for us to purchase our redemption, to purchase. He loves you so much, that's the price he paid. And he did it willingly. He did it. He wasn't grudgingly. That was his plan to give his blood to purchase you so that you would know him and he would know you. And it wouldn't end up like this, apart from me, for I never knew you. It would be, welcome home, my child, or welcome home, my son or daughter. So, lastly, uh, in applying this, I would encourage you to pick out one of the Beatitudes and one of these correlation you have heard, but I say to you, and to me, like, application is pretty obvious, you know, like, don't get mad if people treat you bad or whatever. So, but I would encourage you, sometimes there's like so much stuff and every week and it's like, ah, how do I live differently? I would encourage you to pick out one of the Beatitudes, there's eight or nine, and one of, the, of these correlations and determine to apply it to your life, that your life will be different from this day forth. If not, man, I've wasted a lot of hot air. <laughs> So, all right, Lord, thank you. You are good. Thank you for your spirit that dwells in us. With you, all things are possible. And so we ask that our lives would be transformed, that Jesus, you would change the way we think, and through that, the way we act. I pray, God, that you would be glorified as we just walk through life, amazed at your grace, thankful for your redemption, that we would be people who are spiritually poor and filled with joy. Um, so we bless you and praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.